everyone, and welcome to What About the Canadians, a podcast about Canadian history. My name is Shauna. And my name is Ashley. And we are two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we'll be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we will examine the battles the Canadians served in. All right, we're back. We're back for episode two of Vimy Ridge. The big one, Vimy Ridge. Yeah, so last episode, we kind of delved a little bit into what was happening in uh, 1916, 1917. We talk about the United States entering the war. Uh, We talk about how the Canadians ended up at Vimy Ridge, uh, how they prepared for those battles. And we talked about, of course, the big bosses of the show. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't know what I mean by that, you need to go back to the first episode and listen to it. So the (laughs) second episode makes sense. Yes. So we can talk about how they were Canadian, sort of, but now they're sort of British and they have kind of dual allegiances there and that will come into play coming right up here but first i think we have a little correction from last episode yeah i do um i had talked about um how the germans were sinking american vessels and i had said that one of the vessels nineteen thousand people were on board it was 1900 so whoa that's a, big difference it's a big difference like <laughs> nineteen thousand people on one ship is like <laughs> crazy it would be a really big ship that's right and tyler was like my husband she's he's like did she actually mean nineteen thousand? like uh, <laughs> it'd probably be a lot bigger news <laughs> well thanks for fact checking us there tyler yeah that's funny and go on to our instagram account because i posted pictures of arthur william curry's grave I found it in Montreal, and I was super excited. That is exciting. Absolutely. Very timely. Was very timely. Did you plan your trip to Montreal around our recording for Vimy Ridge? That just seems... Oh, yeah, totally. Really cool. No. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a destination spot for me. And uh, I made huge sacrifices to get this picture because I rolled my ankle and fell and scraped all my knees and like fell on my phone (laughs) so i went to great lengths i had to climb up this mountain to get to this grave okay a mountain they call it a mountain in montreal they call mount royal a mountain it's not a mountain if you're from western canada (laughs) it's a good it's a good like walk up the hill but anyway just go check it out because, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> why not? Yeah. <laughs> if you're a big history nerd like Ashley is, you got to climb a mountain to go see a grave. Yeah. And yeah. it was 100% worth it. And I was super <laughs> offended when other people were walking by the grave and they did not stop to like, look, I'm like, excuse me, do you not know who this man is? Like. Come we on. should print out business cards and you can stand there and hand them out as people walk by. Be like, educate yourself. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. So should we jump into it? Yeah, let's jump in. So 
Ashley ran through this list of men that are Canadian-ish, right? I mean, it's, it is, they're in charge of the Canadians and everything, but, you know, she alluded to that they're still British too, and some are a little old-fashioned, and they kind of, some go back and forth in some way. But the British here were still very into the rank and the chain of command, and you had to follow all these rules, um... And that's part of the reason that the psalm failed, like Ashley said, and it was a total disaster and something needed to change. So we have Curry and, well, mostly Curry. That's the one that we're really going to focus on because I think he was one of the ones that really pushed for the change. Mm -hmm. So one of his standout issues, and it was really controversial to even Bing at the time, was that he Curry wanted all the men to know all of the plan. So every man was supposed to know what their objective was, where they were supposed to go, what they were supposed to do. Because if their officer gets taken out in front of you and you have nobody to lead you, you still need to know where to go. That is just one man ahead of you and he could get shot pretty easily. So you still need to push forward. You can't just wander around the battlefield if somebody else gets taken out. And not even that, not even taken out, is there's so much confusion on the battlefield. And they really learned this in the psalm, especially is that there's the smoke and the craters and the the mud. People just get sucked into the mud and can't move anymore. So the rest of the men have to keep on going. Um, but this wasn't a very popular plan because they the rank, that kind of takes away the importance of the rank to some respect. But it was important enough that Curry pushed for 44,000 maps to be issued in the trenches. So he got his way at least somewhat in here that they were gonna that they were gonna know what they were doing. Um, he also insisted on training. They set up a full scale training field behind the lines. And this Curry really insisted on this. He was obsessed with finding out. Like Ash said, he he really interviewed everybody and he got he dug deep and he figured out what happened. And he wanted to avoid any of those failures. So the best way that he knew to avoid these failures was to practice, to see where things might go wrong and then to change the plan around those obstacles. And he wanted to know, or he wanted his soldiers to know where the machine gun nests were, how they can get around it, what they can do in, you know, with these craters in these places. And and it really made a huge difference. And these men trained for weeks, if probably closer to months, trying to memorize what the battlefield looked like. It's so funny because it just seems like a common sense strategy. But it would, like you said, like it completely overtook, I guess, like your rank and following order. And that was very important in the British system. (laughs) It was because if you don't have your rank then what good are you, right? Then you're just, you know, you're the same as the privates behind you. So yeah, yeah, it does seem like common sense, but that was, like you said, 19th century common sense, not 20th century. Yeah. So they also had, in, in a line with all these new training tactics and all that, they also had some new weaponry. Um, They had the new, this one is big, the new 106 fuse. And it was designed to detonate on impact rather than burying the artillery in the ground before it exploded. So the old shells, they would come hit, 
get in the ground and then explode underneath because they had enough pressure to go into, into the ground most of the time. Um, this innovation was painfully necessary after the psalm, they realized. So if you listen to that big three-parter that we just sent out in the last couple weeks here, um, we mentioned that the barbed wire was a big problem because the Germans would line their trenches in front of their trenches, sometimes like 50 meters deep in front of their trenches, all this barbed wire. And the artillery that buried itself in the ground would just kind of toss it in the air sometimes, but it didn't really clear the ground at all. So they needed the artillery that would explode and clear it all all the way, basically. Yes. Um, the artillery was, up to this point, I mean, it's been important, but not to what it could have been. I feel like had they ch- made this change earlier, it really could have changed what happened in almost every single battle because the only time that the artillery, at least in the Somme, made, I mean, it always made a difference, but the only time that it had a huge, like, altering impact, impact, (laughs) uh, (laughs) was on the last time that they attacked the Regina Trench. And this was, Curry was in charge of this one too. Um, They gave it every bit of artillery they had. They leveled the trench. There was basically no trench left. They just obliterated it. Um, But they don't have that many shells to do that to an entire battle. So they needed to innovate and change this. So this is what this 106 fuse did. And so that... Yeah, that's going to be. I give a round of applause to whoever (laughs) invented that. Yes, (laughs) because I think we even mentioned this like really early on in the season, how problematic it was, and that there was going to be this new invention, and we finally got there. (laughs) Yes, there's so many cliffhangers coming in this episode. We're just tying everything together. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So on top of the 106. They also advanced flash spotting and sound ranging. So this was um, something they used to figure out where the other artillery is or where the guns are, you know. Um, I'll explain this (laughs) better. (laughs) That was just the quick little tidbit. Okay. Okay. Now, Andrew McNaughton was a professor of engineering and a gunner during the war. And he actually had a really impressive post-war career, and he eventually went on to become the commander of the 1st Canadian Army during World War II. He used his experience in engineering to improve the artillery's ability to locate the enemy's guns using the concepts of flash spotting and sound ranging. And these methods used the flash of the firing guns and their explosive report to triangulate the gun's location on the battlefield, allowing them to be targeted pretty precisely very scientific that's super cool yeah yeah so he he really pushed that that science forward and and was able to get the guns to find their targets better yeah be a bit more effective and um andrew mcnaughton if you remember remember the um ah his name just escaped me (laughs) um my boyfriend oh uh (laughs) That you, you claim is my boyfriend. Yes. John McCrae. I was going to be like Tyler. No. <laughs> John McCrae. John McCrae, yeah. He was he was one of the f- good friends of John McCrae. He was John McCrae's biographer. 
That's right. Yeah. 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 I knew I had heard that name somewhere, but I didn't go back and listen to all of them. Yeah. That's who that is. Yeah. Anyway. So he is an important fella. And then on top of these ones, we have the Creeping Barrage, which we know they've used in the Psalm and other people have used other places. But this is where it really came into full force. It was being improved upon and they knew that it was going to be important, especially Curry. He really liked this. Um, he knew they needed to refine this tactic in order to have any sort of success at Vimy. It was an artillery barrage. I I know I've explained this before, but in case other people have listened to the episodes, um, it's an artillery barrage that moved forward across the battlefield, almost creating a wall in front of the Canadians so that they could advance and the enemy couldn't fire back. And since they were under heavy attack, um... And then the Canadians would be, if there was anything left, the Canadians would be right on top of them. It was used at the Somme. It had some success. But a lot of times there, I don't know if it was the math or just the people setting up the guns. But a lot of times it ended up moving backwards instead of forwards, raining Mm -hmm. on top of the Canadians. Or they would overshoot their target or it would be the wrong timing they would let up early and then the canadians are just in the middle of the battlefield with no cover so it it really needed to have a little bit of tweaking on that one it hadn't so, been uh, it hadn't been mastered yet no no definitely <laughs> not but that is where major alan brook or brookie Um, comes in. He was the chief architect of the Creeping Barrage. And he was only 33, but had organized a lot of the barrages at the Somme, which admittedly wouldn't give him a great track record, but it's new. So, you know, you got to cut him a little bit of slack. Um, Brooke was seen as almost a genius. He was mathematically inclined and, I quote, had a mind like a tabulating machine, which is what Curry's aide-de-camp said about him. Wow. This guy was... He was pretty smart. Yeah. (laughs) He and his team had a difficult job at Vimy. They had to use their artillery to destroy defenses, suppress counterfire, and then set up for the creeping barrage. So for the creeping barrage, they decided there would be one heavy gun for every 18 meters of frontage, totaling almost 1,000 heavy guns and one field gun for every nine meters. So this ended up being three times the firepower at the Somme, for heavy guns and double the power for field guns. Wow. They they needed that at the Somme. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, lessons learned. I don't know. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so they also used aerial reconnaissance to find out the German positions, which ended up creating a lot of dogfights. Um, and the average lifespan of a new pilot was only 11 days. Ooh. Yeah, so I don't know who would ever want to sign up to be a pilot for that, but... No. No. Not enough of them. And this was kind of one of the the starts... Well, not the starts of dogfights, but it was kind of a peak of dogfights in this battle here. Yeah, we really haven't talked a lot about the Air Force, have we? No. We need to do an episode on, um, on a few of those guys. I think maybe Gray. Let's maybe, do a mini-sode. Maybe, maybe a mini-sode. Yeah. Alrighty. My turn? Your turn. Oh, good. Because I have another <laughs> tactical innovation to talk about. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> and that was the trench raid. Now, we've talked about this before. 
Um, this, the use of it at Vimy wasn't the first time, but it, it is being credited to the Canadian, specifically to Victor Odlum, who was the commander of the 7th Battalion of the 4th Division. Now, he initiated the first trench raid at Ypres after one of his men suggested the idea as a way to relieve boredom. <laughs> okay, different mindset. Different mindset, Ashley. Um, <laughs> and it's also funny, like, why is he being credited when it was the guy below him? Well, because there comes into that rank. I know. And the guy below him couldn't just, like, run into a trench. I know, but it's not fair. <laughs> I, I acknowledge you, guy below Victor Oldham. <laughs> We don't know your name, but we acknowledge <laughs> we you. We acknowledge you. Now, uh, I mean, the objective of a trench raid is, is pretty much as it sounds. Like, you send a group of soldiers across no man's land into enemy trenches, and there you take prisoners of war for the purpose of acquiring information. Now, actually, it actually became like a bit of a competition between the British and Canadian and maybe some of the other allies about who could conduct the most raids, who could get the most POWs. So <laughs> it was like a thing on the front. Now, um, trench raids, of course, come with sacrifice. And Bing and Curry tended to disagree on the importance of such raids. Now, Bing favored the large raids because he thought it boosted morale. Curry, on the other hand, preferred the smaller raids. If and only if obtaining information was deemed feasible and necessary. Like he wanted to protect the lives of his men and not have any unnecessarily unnecessary deaths. But I mean, regardless, the Canadians conducted about 55 raids up to the to the lead up to the battle, which is quite a few. Each raid was planned meticulously and the soldiers had to be ruthless in their execution in order to complete their mission and the allotted time. Now, for example, in Pierre Burton's book, he talks about how the 26th New Brunswick Battalion, after bombing the germ like a German trench line with grenades, um, they found 30 shocked Germans in a dugout. And when they refused to be taken prisoner... The New Brunswicker, New Brunswickers, <laughs> that's a hard <laughs> word to say, New Brunswickers, uh, quote unquote, sealed them in. So they weren't, uh, they weren't messing around. Now, the constant raids kept the Germans on edge and the raids were always scheduled on like unexpected days and times. Like, for example, they scheduled one on Christmas Day. Some might be in the middle of the day. So... The Germans were constantly in like this nervous state about when the Canadians were coming. Um, but by March 1917, um, the intelligence corps knew the enemy's strength, their relief cycles and key positions on the German line. So obviously these 55 raids were were worth it, I think. Now, the lead up to the Battle of Vimy can be staged into two phases. The first began on March the 1st and was kicked off with a raid that involved 1,700 soldiers from the 4th Division with the intention of inflicting major damage on Hill 145. Now, what's different about this raid is that the Canadians were planning to use gas to weaken the German defense. 
However, by the time March 1st rolled around, it really was no secret that the Canadians were planning to attack. I mean, the Germans could probably hear, maybe see like 160 tanks of gas that the Canadians were <laughs> rolling to underneath to the front lines. Um, but that, I mean, really, that was kind of the least of their worries because this plan was doomed before it even began. I mean, first, someone completely overlooked the fact that gas, being heavier than air, does not climb hills. So instead, <laughs> of course, it's going to sink into your shell holes that the advancing soldiers are going to use for protection. Like, okay. Wow. So second, as we know, weather conditions play an integral role in moving gas towards the enemy lines. So, of course, it is important to wait for the perfect day. And March 1st was that perfect day, or so they thought. Now, this wasn't shared. This thought wasn't shared by everyone. Uh, many of the field officers knew that they were walking into a suicide mission, and this included Victor Oldlum. And he pleaded with their commanders to postpone the raid to ensure that the men were better trained. But the commanders refused, um, basically stating that the raid was taking a psychological toll on the men and they needed to move forward with the attack. Um, so what they mean by that is like when you are constantly saying, okay, the battle's Monday. No, it's Tuesday. No, it's Thursday. It's like you're just constantly waiting and it takes a toll. So for the commanders, they're like, no, let's go. Let's get this done. So... The field officers were ignored. And at 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., phosgene and chlorine gas was released over the battlefield. Now, predictably, the phosgene gas sunk into the shell holes. And as for the chlorine, well, the winds changed direction. Oh, no. And the, ga if the chlorine gas fl flew back in their faces. So you know it's bad when the rats are scurrying across the battlefield and jumping into your trenches to seek shelter. Oh. And then you are being called to go over the trench. <laughs> no. no. But no. they did, because that was their orders. And unfortunately, they were mowed down by mach uh, German machine gunners. So out of the 1,700 men, 687 died that day. Oh. Yeah, it was a huge loss, and the situation was just so pitiful that the Germans even offered a truce to allow the Canadians to collect their dead, and some of the Germans even helped them. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you really have to wonder what prompted the Canadian commanders to continue with this plan. I mean, I said what their rationale was, but... But I mean, still. But considering that Bing was so adamant not to make the same mistakes that the like British had done in previous battles, like it's just odd they ignored the warnings of their field officers. So yeah, it just seems like such an avoidable waste. Yeah, like the psychological toll of waiting or the psychological toll of w losing six hundred men. Exactly, but uh, hmm. I know. Armchair historians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, although this was a disastrous start in the buildup to the battle, the Canadians were not deterred. They conducted a trench raid every night between March 20th and April the 3rd. 
Now, the firepower during this build-up phase was also extraordinary. The Canadians launched over 275,000 shells, and the machine gunners fired over 300,000 rounds per night. But this is nothing compared to what we will see in Phase 2. Phase 2. All right. Is that the week of suffering? That's the week of suffering. That's the week of suffering. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So next comes the week of suffering. Um, It's a preliminary bombardment that, you know, it was before the battle, they just wanted to knock out as much as they could. So... They, this started on March 20th, 1917, and it lasted for 13 days. So really, it's kind of the two weeks of suffering, not week. But the idea was to hit hard, make it really intense, destroy any fortifications they could, mainly take out that barbed wire that had been plaguing them at the Somme, and cut any communication lines to the rear that would allow the Germans to bring up more reinforcements or let anybody know what's going on, really. Um, And then to leave no time to repair it before the battle. It was also to conceal the actual date of the attack. Um, Because everybody knew an attack was coming, this was obvious, but they didn't want to know exactly which day, so they just kept bombing them. Um, This was similar to the attack on the Regina Trench at the Somme that I mentioned earlier. Um, Basically, they just wanted to get rid of anything they could so there would be as few obstacles as possible. And it was intense because the Germans couldn't do anything really except for hide in their dugouts or their trenches or their tunnels. Uh, One Bavarian defender said, my dugout is four meters under the ground and yet is not quite safe from the British who bombard us like the very devil, which is kind of annoying because he didn't say Canadians. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of that, um, I read that some of the shells now could actually go 20 feet deep. So, yeah, you could get get caught underground. You could very easily, yeah. And that was part of the plan, too. Like, if you can trap them under there, you can suffocate them, you can stop them from coming up, even better. Yeah. Right. Then there's less of them to come up. Uh, So this week of suffering led into the actual battle. We're here. we're finally here. (laughs) (laughs) So on the field, the Canadians were set up in their four divisions, running north to south along the ridge. Um, At the north uh, was the 4th Division, and then moving south were the 3rd, 2nd, and then the 1st at the southern tip of the ridge. Um, I know I said this at the beginning, but there were over 100,000 Canadians, and but they didn't send everybody into battle. It's not like they rushed with 100,000 men. Out on the field, um, on the actual day, there were 15,000 infantrymen at the front and 12,000 in support. So significantly less than what was actually there. Um, there was also a reserved battalion in case the worst happened and the lead troops were completely obliterated. They still had extra men to send in. So these, what did I say, like 27,000 men were organized into their battalions and given their objectives and given their maps um, the, the actual battlefield objectives were set into four lines, and we're going to make sure to put a map up of this because it's, it's kind of hard to explain without having any visuals. We're so good at uh, explaining the battlefields in a clear way. <laughs> well, they're, they're complicated, and I've looked at these maps, and it's like, 
I don't know. If you look at an artillery map, it's just lines everywhere. And I know. They're confusing if you don't have any sort of background in it. Um, but this map, um, they had their objective set as the black, red, blue, and then the brown line. And each battalion was to take their own portion. So they would kind of be moving straight forward as straight as they could, sort of. And each line was kind of receding backwards. Um Ex- uh, although the veterans of the first and second, because they had been over here the longest, I don't know if that's why they were chosen, but they had to run through all four lines. Uh, but the third and the fourth were only to take the black and the red. But they also had the daunting task of dealing with Hill 145 and the pimple. The defenders on these hills could start a crossfire because there was, um, I think they were about 1500 meters apart. And they could start a crossfire in between. So this was quite the task. And it would completely incapacitate the 10th, 11th, and 12th brigades that were in the area. The plan of the lines was practiced again and again in their battlefield training behind. So the men knew down to the minute where they were supposed to be. So at 5.30 on April 9th, 1917, the men went over the top to take their objectives. The idea was to capture the first objective dig in, wait for reinforcements and mopping up crews, and then move on to the next objective. So here is what their plan was. At 6.05 a.m., the black line was to be captured. From 6.05 to 6.45, they paused for new units to come in. At 7.05, the red line was to be captured. From 7.05 to 9.35, they could take a break. From, or at 10.50, the blue line was to be captured. From 10.50 to 12.26, they could pause. And then at 1.18 p.m., the brown line was to be captured. So for a total of 7 hours and 48 minutes, <laughs> Vimy was supposed to be done. That is very specific. <laughs> it is. Like 12.26, you couldn't round down, round no. up, give him like the four extra minutes. Man. <laughs> yeah. Holy. Okay. So on the actual day... The weather was miserable because it always seems to go that way. If something can go wrong, it will. There was sleet and rain and snow, but they could not delay the battle. This was sort of akin to what Ashley was saying about the psychological effects, but also just logistically. They had all this set up. Nothing was going to change this. So zero hour was 5.30 a.m. And the infantry had to move 90 minutes, sorry, 90 meters every three minutes to keep pace with the creeping barrage. Before the assault, Bing said to the men, Chaps, you shall go over, go over exactly like a railroad train on the exact time or you shall be annihilated. Which was absolutely true. He was pretty blunt. If the timing was off, they risked either being hit by their own barrage or left out in the open to expose and be exposed to enemy fire. So True. Yeah. <laughs> Very blunt. So I'm going to go through the divisions and what they did rather than go chronologically because I think this will kind of hopefully clear things up a little bit, make it a little bit easier to understand. Um, So we're going to start with the first division. And remember, they had to go through all four lines. They had the longest, well, not the longest, but they had the most objectives to achieve. Actually, I don't think you're wrong. I think the distance between their trench lines and the Germans was considerably farther than what the 4th Division saw. The 4th Division, for sure, but I think the 2nd had the longest Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah. 
So the first division started their assault, commanded by our own Arthur Curry, and he sent in six battalions to capture the first two lines, and then another three battalions came in to capture Farbus Wood, which was a cache of German artillery hiding in the trees. The remaining battalions were held back until they were needed for the final pushes and to keep any gained ground when the expected counterattack started. There were no easy times on Vimy, but for the 1st Division, the 1st and 2nd lines fell pretty swiftly with little resistance, mostly due to that week of suffering and the creeping barrage and the devastation that it caused in the German trenches. There wasn't a whole lot left in these first two lines. Even the defense of the 3rd line, which was the blue line, was minimal, but enough to cause several hundred Canadian casualties. The issue plaguing the advancing infantry of the 5th Battalion were a grouping of German machine gun nests that were left untouched by the barrage. And they were outside of the 1st Division's objective, so that meant if they were to clear it, they would risk running into friendly fire for the division beside them. Um, So they could either... They had three choices. They could either retreat advance to their objective and risk the machine guns, or cross into their neighbor's section and try to clear the guns. They chose to try to clear the guns and risk getting shot by the Germans and the Canadians, but their gamble paid off and they were able to clear the nests with bombs and bayonets before running back and getting back on their objective. Each battalion had their own troubles to contend with, generally being machine guns, that was a huge problem, that were left still intact. Uh, In some cases, individual men took charge. One of those was Sergeant Major J.F. Hurley, who bayoneted a three-man crew to capture their machine gun, and Private W.J. Milne, who crawled through the mud and threw grenades into the post until until the firing stopped and the rest of his unit could advance. He even knocked out a second nest all by himself and was awarded the Victoria Cross, but... Unfortunately, instead of receiving it in person, he died on the bridge uh, that day. I was just thinking that too. And I'm like, I didn't look at any of the Victoria Cross winners for Vimy. So I'm glad you mentioned one. There's a few. I've got a, a few going through the battalions here because there was quite a few of them that oh, okay, were very important. And, and they did a really important job, but they didn't always make it home. Yeah. Um, so after the black and the red lines, which were the first two, were taken, the next waves wave of soldiers headed forward to beef up the forces already moving to capture the blue and brown lines. This would have been a very different experience for the men that went over the top first. The reserves had to cross an already fought on battlefield that was covered in Canadian and German bodies with stretcher bearers and German prisoners clearing the field and the best they could through this Canadian or through this continuous fighting. Uh, But they moved over the same muddy field to meet up with the rest of the the rest of them and continue fighting. So for the first division, the blue line was taken with relative ease. Again, you know, some, some problems, but not, not as bad as they expected. Um, and they had to get some pushes to get through the machine guns that were left. I'm seeing a pattern here. There's, there's a lot of machine guns left and we're going to, that's going to pop up a whole lot here. Uh, somehow a good number of machine gun nests were able to withstand that bombardment. I think it was because of how, Strongly, they were entrenched. There was a lot of concrete around them, or they just they had their positioning right. Um, so a lot of the Germans manning the machine guns fought to the death rather than surrender. They were, they were going for their cause there. So here are the Canadians. They took the black, red, and blue lines after, I think, about six hours. 
which put them on the ridge and they could look back down and see the fighting that was still happening to the north. And there were pipers piping these men over the ridge. (laughs) I still cannot believe that men carried their bagpipes in battles like this, but that was apparently very important for their morale. Yep. So even in at Vimy, even at the Somme, men were playing those bagpipes. Uh, but the brown line still stood in their way. So at 1226, with very little co- communication to the artillery, from the artillery to the front, they started another creeping barrage because that was the schedule. They had to stick to that or else they'd get in the middle of a barrage. So thankfully, the barrage was calculated properly this time and the men hadn't lost their objective or overshot it. Um, This was a really big stronghold, the brown line was, for the Germans because it was their last position before the supporting trenches, which I think were a couple kilometers, I can't remember exactly, behind the lines. Um, But they took the brown line with their Vickers and Lewis machine guns. These men lugged, not only did they lug bagpipes, but they lugged machine guns across this battlefield. That seems so crazy. And up the hill, like, I don't know how how heavy those are, but I feel like that's got to be a heavy thing. They've got to be like 40 pounds, I would think at least. And like, if you. Oh, I'm sure. Like, you think of all the shell holes you have to like navigate around, and it's probably muddy. Like, oh, yeah, it'd be difficult. Yeah, this couldn't have been easy, but they got them up the hill and they fired on the retreating Germans and took out as many as they could. So they, they got their objectives, they did it. Awesome. Good job, first division. So now we have the second division, which is Burstall's division. Um, they were expected to have the heaviest fighting because the front was such an irregular shape. It was kind of like pie-shaped, so from the start it was 1,300 meters wide, but at the end of their objectives it flared out to 2,000 meters wide. And it kind of curled around to the right, making it tough for the artillery to accurately support them with the creeping barrage because you didn't want to barrage your friendly fire to the right in the first division. So, and they had to push through, I didn't mention this, and I should have, with the (laughs) geography of the ridge, but there were villages on the ridge. There was the village of Thelis, Thelis, and Farbus. There wasn't much left of these villages, but there was still Mm -hmm. some structures there and the Germans could hide in them. Um, So they had to pass through those as well. Bing knew this would be beyond difficult, so he gave this division eight tanks and a British brigade as support. But the tanks basically sucked. There was nothing, (laughs) nothing they could do. If you've seen pictures of Vimy or, you know, you've been listening for the last however long, it was cratered. It was mud. There, they couldn't get past. The tanks were really still a new invention. They brought them in in the Somme. We talked about their first use there, and they really did a great job of intimidation. But all of them were basically left on the battlefield. They couldn't make it across in the mud and everything. So these tanks, yeah, thanks, Bing. Awesome. They didn't do anything. <laughs> um, but the. So the first line, which was the black line, fell pretty easily for the second division. Again, things are looking pretty okay so far. Easily is a relative term, though. Um, Nothing was actually easy here, but the artillery had done its job. So the holdup again was more machine guns left standing. 
Uh, of course, there are probably a hundred stories of individual acts of bravery that happen on the field, and we could spend all day talking about the Victoria Crosses. Ha, huh, throwback to Ashley there. Here's another <laughs> one for you. <laughs> um, all day, you know, with these Victoria Crosses awarded to dead men at Bimmy. So choosing a few t- to talk about doesn't discount the rest. Maybe we'll do another mini-sode of Victoria Crosses at Vimy. I don't know. Um, but here's a story of one man who saved the lives of the men in his unit. Lance Sergeant Ellis Sifton, who was a farmer from Wallace Town, Ontario. His men were pinned down and being picked off by small arms fire. So handguns, rifles, that sort of thing. Uh, Sifton did what he thought he had to do in order to continue the advance and charge the trench. He emptied his rifle and used his bayonet killing every German in that section of the trench. His men caught up and continued to push forward, but unfortunately Sifton was shot by a dying German soldier and didn't make it past his objective. Mm. But they continued on. The next line is the red line, and it fell this time with more casualties. The 21st Battalion had lost a third of its men in this push here. Wow. But it was still taken following the creeping barrage that they were still going through. Um, A steady stream of prisoners were sent towards the Canadian lines. These men mostly willingly surrendered because if they had put up any sort of fight, they would just be shot. One story I came across was really great. A 22-year-old man. 22. That seems so young. Like, they're just kids. And that's not even talking about the 17-year-olds and 16-year-olds that are there. Oh, I find it (sighs) hilarious might be not right word, but like, by this time, they're like, oh, the veterans. I'm like, they're like 19. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's crazy. I know. These to think kids like what they've, what they've gone through. Mm-hmm. So this poor 22-year-old, uh, J.E. Johnson, had a group of riflemen and they found a cave. And he threw in a few small Mills bombs and then went to check the damage and went in shooting. And he... The cave was full of Germans. There was 105 Germans in there. And he lied his butt off, saying he had a large group of soldiers waiting to waiting for their surrender. And he talked his way out of this. And the Germans, he disarmed them. And they walked out of the trench, or sorry, out of the cave and surrend- surrendered. And there was like, I think there was like less than 10 of them up there or something. I so, love this story. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> At least he disarmed them, though, because if he had let any of them come up with their guns, they would be gone. But that was great. Yeah. And another one of surrendering is um, some other Germans surrendered to the Winnipeggers. And these men had brought green paint with them because they wanted to get the recognition and the glory from (laughs) taking these prisoners. So they painted... On the backs of anybody that surrendered to them, it was a a rectangle with a circle on top of it. I don't know what the symbolism is there. I don't know if they just made it up or whatever. But they painted on these German prisoners and sent them back to the lines. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But they did take a lot of prisoners. Um, Of course, that was if the Canadians were in the mood to take prisoners and... A lot of them, the Canadians were known for not really taking them. They just wanted to to get rid of the Germans. But they did need people to clear the battlefield. So that was part of it. A big reason why they took so many prisoners was because the Germans were used to clear the battlefield. 
So the engineers were sent forward to create some strongholds in this section and defend, completely circle them with barbed wire and defend them there. Um, but soon the men were advancing again and they too took their objectives after about eight hours, I think, of constant fighting. They got there and they took it. So this is actually going to plan almost minute for minute. Things are working out kind of well. Which brings us to the third division now. Remember, these are all starting at the same time. This is not mm -hmm. stacking. This is all at 530. They're all starting. Um, the third division, commanded by Louis Lipset, as Ashley had talked about, had only the black and red lines to take. And I say only, but it's not like it was easier for them. The ridge was steeper for their objectives, and there were a few craters that had been there for a long time that were impossible to go through and difficult to go around. They were 10 to 15 meters deep. And since they were considered a danger in that the enemy could hide in them and flank the advancing troops, they were blown even bigger with a lot of big guns. And the men had the unfortunate task of going around them. They were told to throw grenades in them just to make sure there was nobody in there. I don't know who would want to or who would actually be hiding in there because from what I've heard of the mud and the water and the snow, it's just, that's like an open grave. Yeah. Basically, men got sucked in there, bodies fell in there. It was just a nasty situation. So I, I can't imagine that anybody was actually hiding in there, but I don't know. They didn't, I didn't see any reports of that actually happening. Yeah, I, that seems doubtful. Yeah. Lipset had a difficult task because of the geography of the lines. His section of the black line was on top of the ridge and the red was on the downward slope behind it, which meant that they didn't have a whole lot of time to settle in between pushes. They mostly had to take it all in one go. Since this section was particularly cratered, it made the advance slower than it should have been and created more confusion than, than what was expected. Men lost their ways and left room for counterattacks and resistance that left the leading troops vulnerable since any mopping up crews hadn't had the chance to arrive yet. The Germans fired more heavily on this side with counterattacks and many shells made it past the creeping barrage and into the Canadian lines. But within 90 minutes, La Folie Farm, the strongest section of the German line in that area, was taken. By 7.05, after a break that called for cigarettes and what little water they had, the barrage started again and they moved towards the red line. One of the biggest obstacles that the 3rd Division faced was Hill 145. The fire from the hill flanked them on their left, so they had not only machine gun fire coming from the front, uh, but also the side and the artillery from the German gunners that were left intact. But they still pushed through and reached their objective. But the fire on their left flank was proving even worse for the 4th Division. So the 4th Division had the shortest distance to go, but they had more obstacles than the others, um, including the steepest incline. But they also dealt with the pimple in Hill 145. The crossfire here was proving to be the hell that was absolutely expected. They knew what they were running into. The Germans could see better from these points than any other position on the ridge and created deep fortified dugouts on the downward slope, which mean, which meant that hitting them with artillery was basically impossible. So to counteract the left flank of the pimple, oh, I keep saying that word. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, the left flank of the pimple, Bing decided not to take it in his 
in this objective, but rather to screen the troops, um, advancing on to 145 with smoking gas. So they were just kind of leaving the pimple for later. Another day. Yeah. Uh, Watson, the commander of the 4th, didn't like this idea because he knew that they would still be firing from there. But there wasn't much that could be done with the troops and the guns that they had to simultaneously attack the pimple, which was about 1,500 meters north of Hill 145. In this section, because of the incline, at zero hour, a line of mines was set off along the front, leaving holes in the German lines. So that was what Ashley was talking about. They dig underground and lay their mines and then detonate them when it was time. Um, the terrain was so pockmarked that the infantry had trouble keeping up with the barrage and were often left wide open, vulnerable to the machine guns left standing again. They fought through the mud, losing machine guns, rifles, men, even boots to the suffocating mud. There was a lot of instances of men moving forward in their sock feet because the mud would just suck down their boots. Ugh. Yeah, I remember my sister. <laughs> this is totally different, but... My sister lost her sandal in some sand that sucked her sandal off. And, <laughs> and it was devastating. We were like all of five, I'm sure. Was, uh, I think Buffalo Lake. And it was horrible to lose a sandal in the sand. I can't imagine losing your boot in the mud. Uh, <laughs> while you're in battle. Yeah. Yeah, just going through in your socks. Uh, the confusion was rampant because of the craters and the smoke that the officers... They, they lost their men. The men lost their machine gunners. It seemed like no one knew exactly where their targets were because this particular spot was so crazy. Victor Oldlam, um, his 11th brigade, was ordered to take the summit of Hill 145. And it seemed impossible, but Oldham knew to have success, he would need to push every man he had up the hill. So at 740, the 102nd Battalion's headquarters which was part of the 11th Brigade. This is a lot of confusing sections here, but uh, noted that things were not going well. That was their their little note <laughs> at that time. <laughs> what a f***ing understatement. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> so just to emphasize that point, a Prussian soldier noted that the Canadian corpses accumulate and form small hills of khaki. Oh, yuck. The hill needed to be taken, though, to fully secure the ridge, so Watson turned to a new unit, the 85th Highlanders from Nova Scotia. They had only recently come to France and had absolutely no battlefield experience, but at least they had that fresh-faced enthusiasm that experience can kill. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they're not jaded? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so these poor Highlanders... They didn't even have their kilts yet, and they were being made fun of for being the trousered Highlanders. <laughs> I would so much rather have pants than a kilt. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not them. They wanted to be kilted. <laughs> so they didn't even expect to fight, and they were being used as road builders and to clear the wounded, but Watson thought that they were his best chance um, to have uh, taken the hill. So at 6 p.m., so this is going quite a bit over the objectives that they had planned at this point. Uh, at 6 p.m., the Nova Scotians were supposed to go over the top following a barrage, but they called off the barrage because of the worry of friendly fire. 
The messengers didn't make it though. So just after zero hour, with no supporting barrage, the Nova Scotians spurred their courage and went over anyway. <laughs> they had a battle cry and they just did it. They didn't know what was happening, but they did it. They fixed their bayonets and prepared for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And this actually surprised the Germans more than the bombardment would have because who would be crazy enough to go over the top without any suppressing fire? So the brave 85th captured most of Hill 145, but parts of the eastern slope were still in German control. The Germans attempted a counterattack to take back the hill, but it was really disorganized and that made it pretty impossible. The Germans weren't, just weren't set up for it. On the eastern slope, the 19th Brigade got another creeping barrage, and the 44th took their objectives, but the 50th couldn't advance because of machine gun fire. But a man named John Pattison, a 42-year-old Calgarian, single-handedly advanced on a machine gun post, and he got within 30 meters and threw three grenades, then charged with his bayonet and killed all the Germans before his men arrived. So there's another, I think it was another Victoria Cross. Winner. I was going to say, it yeah. must be. Yeah. Absolutely. So on April 10th, Hill 145 was captured, but it's not like the battle was over because we had that gross pimple over on the side still harassing them. So the 5th Guard Grenadier Regiment, um, this was a German regiment, uh, they were elite Prussian guard, had been sent over there to reinforce the pimple and make it a stronghold for their last, like, claw chance. Claw yeah. The chance there. So the 45th and 50th Battalions, these are the ones who were just part of taking Hill 145, were sent to do the same with the pimple. They were sent over at 5 a.m. on April 12th, supported by 100 field guns and machine gun fire from Hill 145. So they had captured and they were shooting the machine guns over at the pimple. Um, the, and the bar bombardment started at 2 a.m. The creeping barrage failed, though, because of the thick mud. The men couldn't move fast enough to keep up with the wall. They were all getting sucked down in there. So the Canadians, though, they took the pimple within an hour after a charge by the Prussians that resulted in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So the Canadians kicked their butt with their hands and their bayonets. Maybe that sword training at Salisbury did, you know, pay off. I'm kidding. I don't think they had swords. I'm kidding, but I'm thinking like <laughs> the bayonet movements, but the fourth division wouldn't have been at Salisbury. Probably not. No, no, I don't I'm just so. joking. <laughs> oh, so Bing said of this, poor old Prussian guard, what a mouthful to swallow being beaten to hell by what they called untrained colonial levies. Ooh. Ooh, burn. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the whole battle of Vimy Ridge consolidated pretty quickly, but it did actually happen relatively on time, relatively quickly. And it's impressive. Pretty impressively. Ab yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I guess the question now becomes, with this success and the momentum that they had, why didn't they just break through the German lines? Well, first, Bing's orders was to capture Vimy and nothing more. Now, we know in the army, you do not break the orders of your superiors. If you do, it results in a court-martial, and Bing wasn't going to do this. And then second, 
it probably actually wasn't all that feasible. I mean, they were limited by the range of their artillery. I mean, you can't just move your big guns across the battlefield quickly. I mean, that's been exemplified by the story Shauna just told us. <laughs> like, if you're losing a boot, how are you going to get your guns across the field? Like, the like the 18-pounder gun itself weighed over a ton, and it required six horses and countless numbers of men to move it. So it's not, it's maneuverability just isn't there. No, now, it's not going anywhere. No. And now, second, the German lines were stretched for miles. So to keep pressure on the Germans, I mean, what ended up happening is the Canadians used the German guns like against them, meaning so once they reached their objective, any weapons that the Germans had left over, they would just kind of turn it towards the Germans and start firing on them. But I mean, with that, again, you're only going to go so far. Now, some people argue that, well, maybe the cavalry could have come in and like gone on the flank to encircle them. But I mean, Bing had no control over the cavalry at the time. Um, that was under British command. So there was nothing he could really do. It wasn't his call to make. And, you know, by the time maybe you would have organized yourself to do this, like the Germans had already consolidated at Lens. So I think there's a little bit of criticism for the Canadians for not pushing forward, but there were reasons why it, it just couldn't happen. Now, luckily for the Germans, um, even von Hindenburg had noted that their inability to exploit their success at Vimy was a piece of good luck for the Germans. I think that was an understatement because I kind of think they they might have done it if they were had been able to, but what do you do? Uh, so what is the aftermath here? Now, during the battle itself, there were 10,602 casualties with about 3,500 dead, bringing the total casualty number to around 20,000, meaning from the time the Canadians got there to the end of the battle, there were about 20,000 casualties. Now, the number of German casualties is unknown, but it is anticipated uh, that their losses were much uh, greater. Now, I actually found like this story I found funny. I feel bad for laughing, but anyway, I'm going to share it. So it, sometimes the wounded got mixed up with the dead in the field. Ooh. So a man by the name of Jack Quinnell was thrown into an ambulance of corpses and he heard someone say, hey, they're all dead in here. And he was like, no, 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 they're not. Like, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. Like the problem was, is that he had such severe trench foot in his mouth, which I didn't. So trench mouth. Trench mouth. I didn't know it was a thing. <laughs> Um, he could barely talk. Oh. And I just found this funny because it reminded me of Monty Python in the <laughs> Holy Grail when Eric Idle is ringing the bell going, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And the customer brings out the guy and he's like, here's your money. And the guy's like, I'm not dead. And the collector's like, not he's dead yet. <laughs> He'll be dead soon. <laughs> yeah. This is not the first time that we've quoted Monty Python. <laughs> I know, but what a it's a strange connection. I know, but it's relevant. 
did this guy survive? Oh, I don't remember. I hope so. I think so. I mean, somebody told the story, so he must have survived at least a little while. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did survive now that I think about it. Oh, good. Yes. (laughs) 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 So after everything that was kind of done, the battle was over, the the territory was in Canadian hands and the allies. Um, The Canadians really, they could be proud of this. France actually gave the ridge and the surrounding land to Canada. In 1922, Walter Allward's design was chosen for the monument, which has the names of 11,285 Canadians killed in France. And in 1936, it was unveiled after there were delays in getting the limestone that was actually from a Roman, yeah, Roman quarry in Croatia. That's interesting. Roman. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I obviously wrote that a little while ago because I forgot about that. That's pretty cool. So while they were waiting to get the limestone, the workers, who were actually largely veterans, um, probably mostly French because they were still in the area there, but um, they spent their time clearing the land and filling in the trenches and tunnels and reinforcing and preserving parts of the Canadian and German trenches. They they really did have to fill everything in because otherwise it would have been extremely dangerous in that area for anybody to go in because things would collapse and all that. So they had a lot of work, but they had all these men that needed work because there wasn't a whole lot going on in France. They were trying to build up their economy after the war. Um, so for this monument, after it was built, King Edward VIII, um, he was the one that abdicated to Mary Wallace Simpson uh, and unveiled the monument. And this was actually one of his few official duties before he abdicated. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, the French called Vimy Canada's Easter gift to the Allies. So there, there's a whole lot of sentiment behind this monument and behind the battle itself. The importance of the battle has been debated. Some say that it was really important to Canadian identity. Some say it was pretty overstated. Um, Really, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in the victory uh, during the anniversaries. Like, it was just another battle because they had been through so many, I think. But it really gained popularity in 1967 on the 50th anniversary, which happened to fall on the Canadian centennial as well. So whether it actually was this huge defining point in Canadian history for the men at the time, there were a lot of important lessons learned and it, it was it was a big victory. Uh, and there was a really nice quote from Sergeant Percy Wilmont and he fought at Vimy and he was wounded in the leg and he died after the battle. But this is what he said of Vimy. As the guns spoke, over the bags they went. Men of Cape Breton, sons of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, French Canadians and Westerners, all Canucks. So far, it was the most decisive, the most spectacular, and the most important victory on this front since the Marne, and Canada may well be proud of this achievement. Absolutely. It meant something to somebody, right? Oh, absolutely. And I agree with, with that wholeheartedly. And then the unfortunate part of the whole victory of Vimy is that, yes, tactically, it's a good, um, 
piece of geography to have, but unfortunately, in the grand scheme of the war, it had very little impact on the outcome. I mean, unfortunately, in the surrounding areas, there just weren't um, victories being seen by the French or the British, so it's not where we're going to see the war come to an end. So, yeah, there's still a lot to go here. We're still not, well, yeah, over a year out. Yes. Right? So there, like, there's still a lot. <laughs> yeah, almost a year and a half left. So, I mean, that's kind of the unfortunate part about it because it was just so well executed and and skillfully done. You just want to see it have this like amazing impact. Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't to be the case. Well, I mean, yes. It, I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. It didn't have this great impact in the outcome of the war. Yes, absolutely. That's just kind of a fact. But I think, personally, it it is kind of a national pride thing. And those men, like, this was the first time that it was just a Canadian battle. And they killed it. They got those objectives. They did it. They could be proud. And they're, I mean, obviously, France is super grateful about it. Or else they wouldn't have given Canadians the land, like. I don't know. Oh, I oh no, I I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. I just mean from a war perspective. Yeah. You kind of want it to be worth your while, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And of course it was a huge probably morale booster, but it uh, just unfortunately didn't maybe have that impact that you'd like it to. But um mm-hmm. changing topics, um not topic, but um when Sean and I went to Vimy, um so the monument uh itself is actually located on hill 145 um so if you're trying if you go there and you're trying to understand like where on the battlefield am i it's at hill 145 and the french um what stood out to me is they had planted like rows of maple leaf trees (laughs) and it's they're gorgeous they're beautiful um and ashley got out of the cab and started (laughs) Balling, I didn't ball. You teared up. I teared profusely. (laughs) (laughs) But it it is a very kind of calm, sentimental space, and it it's a beautifully done memorial and the the interpretive center and the the maple leaf trees. Oh, Ashley's crying now. I think. No, I'm not. just scratching my nose (laughs) (laughs) but the maple leaves and you can go and see the preserved trenches with the the scrapings in the chalk with the maple leaf and it's very sweet oh it's just such a source of pride Mm -hmm. i mean um turning it to a bit of a darker side but even adolf hitler had visited the site in 1940 and was photographed beside it now we know Adolf Hitler had um, a respect for art, so this was not something he wanted to destroy or 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 bomb. I'm not trying to make Adolf Hitler sound like a good guy in any way, but um, he had been there. I and think he actually had a really big reverence for war memorials as well. That was, I mean, as you know, that's right. much as a horrible person he was, it was art and war memorials that he he kind of knew that line. He didn't know any other lines, but he knew that line that wasn't to be crossed. 
And two, um, I'm pretty sure he served in World War One. so... He did, yes. And actually, I think he was saved by an Allied soldier. Oh, really? Yeah, there's... I, I, I wish I could remember it, but I think he was saved by an Allied soldier, and so he... I mean, he had some sort of respect for some things, I guess. Yeah. And uh, with going back to, again, to the monument itself, it had actually fallen in disrepair. Um, it was in bad shape. So the government of Canada spent $30 million restoring it, and it was rededicated by Queen Elizabeth on April 9th, um, 2007. And uh, if you go to Ottawa, actually, to the War Museum, you can see the original, like, preliminary models that, um, what was his name? Uh, Alward. Al- yeah, Walter had uh, had carved. They were kind of his, like, whatever you call it. Prototypes? Pro- yeah, prototypes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that that's really cool, too, so. Neat. I think that's it. Yeah, that puts a pin in Vimy, one of my favorite battles. And next we move on to, I think, Passchendaele. So another big one. Yeah, no kidding. I think we're going to be talking about mud a lot. Hasn't that been the theme (laughs) so far the whole damn time? (laughs) Yes, but I think Passchendaele, the epitome of mud comes in at Passchendaele. <laughs> I don't even know if that sentence made sense, but there's mud. <laughs> there is mud there. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to have to watch the movie. Yes. Before yes, we Yes, it's record. not a great movie, but I will watch it. I've been right. saving it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Join us next time for Passchendaele. You can visit us on our social media. We have Instagram and Facebook at What About the Canadians podcast. And if you want to leave us a review, we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you and we will catch you next time.